The 400 years is the title of my talk. It's the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament and is the precursor to the series that uh, we're about to set out on, on the New Testament. I have to be honest and say that I haven't looked at the 400 years much over the last however many years I've been a Christian. Because for some reason it's been uh, misnamed the 400 years of silence. And it was far from silent. It was highly significant in the preparation by God of the culture of the day, the Jewish people and the world itself, for the arrival of his promised redemption that is mentioned in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. It was a period of preparation. Not surprisingly, it's known as the intertestamental period. So, what happened during that 400-year period? Well, much was to happen in that 400-year period that would shape the world to God's eternal plan, which he had known from the beginning and still carrying on today. So we shouldn't be surprised that this 400-year period was a time of preparation. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Paul says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time came, we can gather from this statement that God was getting things ready, as I say, in that 400-year period for the arrival of the most significant person and event in human history, the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. God, as we uh, have discovered over many times, pre and preached here, God is a God of order. And nothing happens without a purpose. The arrival of Jesus into the world was not a random act where God thought it would be a good idea to send his son into the world. It was part of his master plan that he alone controls. And as we look at this period of time, we will see that many significant things happened that shaped not only the New Testament period, but also continue to shape our lives today. As I researched this, I uh, discovered that we could spend days and days and probably weeks looking at the changes which occurred during this period in history. But I'm not going to do that. You'll be pleased to know. I'm going to concentrate this morning briefly on three dominating influences that shaped what was to come, where the Jewish nation had come to the end of its own efforts and were looking desperately for God to do something. Three things I want to look at are the rulers who ruled the land, the readings or writings that were written at the time, and the religion that occurred during that period. Let's have a look first at those who ruled over the Jewish nation during this period. The northern kingdom was scattered all over the Assyrian Empire, and the southern kingdom of Judah had been captured by and in the main removed to Babylonia. So both kingdoms were under subjugation. In around 536 BC, the Persians conquered Babylonia, and their foreign policy was such that they allowed the people of Judah to return home and to rebuild their cities and to worship again in the temple in, the Ju in Jerusalem. As long as they didn't rebel, they were allowed to pretty much govern themselves. And this continued for about 100 years after the 400-year period started with the governor of Syria overseeing them and the high priest exercising a measure of civil authority. In 334 BC Alexander the Great appears on the scene 
I must admit, I read that with a bit more interest because I've just read a series about Alexander the Great in a series of books that uh, I'd had given to me. And uh, Alexander the Great is a pretty um, influential guy. He defeated the Persian king Darius in three decisive battles. Alexander only lived until he was 33, but is regarded as perhaps the greatest conqueror of all time, conquering Persia, Babylon, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and Western India in his short life. Alexander's great desire was to unify the Western world by language, custom, and civilization. And through his influence, they all started to speak and study the Greek language. This process known as Hellenization became so popular that it was encouraged even through to the Roman era and the New Testament times. Although Alexander allowed the Jews to observe the Jewish laws, Hellenization brought with it an educated Greek culture that also included multi-god worship, thus influencing the religion of the land. Perhaps the greatest influence, though, was the introduction of the Greek language, which was so widespread by 270 BC that a Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, came into being. More later, why that is so significant. Upon Alexander's death in uh, 323 BC, his kingdom was split between four of his generals. And the uh, Ptolemaic dynasty emerged, ruling over Palestine and Israel. And whilst the Jewish religion was allowed to coexist alongside the new Greek influence, some of the Jews found the Greek lifestyle so appealing, and this led to a splitting of the Jews into two distinct groups. The Orthodox, who continued to follow their traditional God, and a new Hellenistic group based on Greek religion. This continued for over a century until in 198 BC, war broke out between Egypt and Syria, And when Syria defeated the Egyptians, Judea was annexed to Syria. This continued much as before until Antiochus Epiphanes. That name translates as God made manifest. So we can imagine there was going to be a few problems with a guy who took on that name. And there were. He became angry that the high priest he had appointed was replaced. And so angry did he become that he set about destroying all the distinctive characteristics of the Jewish faith. All sacrifices were banned, so was circumcision. Observance of the Sabbath was cancelled, and the observance of feast days was also cancelled. The Jews were forced to eat pork and make sacrifices to idols, and practically every copy of the Hebrew Bible was either mutilated or destroyed. His final and perhaps most dastardly act was the desecration of the most holy place in the temple, where he built an altar to and allowed sacrifices of pigs to the god Zeus. Many Jews who opposed this were killed. But God's plan was still taking place. And opposition to Antiochus was led not by some great king or some great influential person within the Jewish faith. He was led by an elderly priest in a small village northwest of Jerusalem. His name was Mattathias. And when a Syrian official came to the village to try and enforce heathen sacrifice on them, 
Mattathias and his five sons revolted. They killed the official and they fled to the mountains where thousands of loyal Jews joined them. And over the next years, Mattathias and his sons after him in what is known as the Maccabean Revolt had retaken Jerusalem by 165 BC. They cleansed the temple and restored biblical worship. This event is celebrated by Jews even to the day as the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. The Jews gained independence from Syria in 142 BC and enjoyed almost 70 years of independence led by the high priesthood. And it was during this time that the Pharisees and Sadducees emerged. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey conquered Syria and entered Israel. With Rome came law and peace and organised systems. It also brought slavery. Five out of every seven people were thought to be slaves. But slaves weren't slaves as perhaps we imagine them from the times when they were taken out of Africa. Slaves were often far better off than free labourers, with Rome passing laws to protect the rights of slaves. Rome also brought in roads, which in due course made it far easier for Christian missionaries to spread the gospel message around the world. And of course it was into this world that Jesus Christ was born. I'll have a look now at the literature that was produced during these 400 years. Much was written to record the events of what happened, but perhaps the three most significant were the Septuagint, the Apocrypha and the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Septuagint appeared in around 250 BC, when around 70 scholars under the sponsorship of Ptolemy Philadelphus came together and produced a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It gained its name from this number, rounded down to 70, and it quickly replaced the Hebrew Bible as very few spoke Hebrew now. And it opened up the Bible not only to non-Hebrew-speaking Jews, but also the whole of the Greek-speaking world, which, thanks to Alexander, was very widespread. Its influence in spreading the scriptures cannot be overestimated, and it later became the Bible of the early church. The Apocrypha is a collection of around 15 books, which, with the exception of two Esdras, were all written during this 400-year period. There is much debate about these writings, with the Protestant Church rejecting them as not God-breathed scripture, whilst the Catholic and Eastern Christian Church gives them much more credence. The reasons for this are far too complex for me to understand and to go into today, but they make good research if you wanted to study them further. They are, however, recognised generally as an excellent source of the historical facts of the time. In 1947, an Arab shepherd chanced upon a cave near the shores of the Dead Sea and found there what had been described as the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. They consist of documents and fragments of documents, approximately a third of which are biblical, with Psalms, Deuteronomy and Isaiah occurring most frequently. And perhaps the most remarkable of them is a complete 24-foot-long scroll of Isaiah. These documents confirm many of the later documents of the Scriptures, 
but of themselves are a thousand years closer to the originals than had been previously known. And they have added much to the authenticity of the writings of the scriptures. And I haven't mentioned it, but they are obviously the Dead Sea Scrolls. Finally, I want to have a look at what happened to the religion of the Jews and those around them during this period of 400 years. Temple worship was re-established during this 400-year period, but struggled. The priests became politically connected and swayed in the wind of change brought by the ruling parties. As a consequence of this, the synagogue, a local teaching institution, was established where the people were taught by local teachers or rabbis. The temple became mainly ceremonial and for the higher members of society, whereas the synagogue was much more instructive, ethical and moral and spoke to the ordinary people. A number of people groups also emerged during this period. Some of them I've mentioned, but let's have a look at some of them. The Sadducees, these were connected to the temple and the high priest and most of the priests came from this group. They were, as I've said, very connected to the rulers of the land and therefore prominent in the Jewish community. And when Rome appeared, they naturally connected closely with them because they wanted to retain their power, wealth, prestige and authority. The Pharisees were the local teachers of the synagogues and spoke to the ordinary people without any personal agendas from scripture. The Sanhedrin was a ruling council of Jews who had been allowed to continue in power from the time of Alexander and administered civil law to the people, saving the ruling powers much tedious administration. They answered to the rulers and Jesus was, as we know, brought before the Sanhedrin. There were also the scribes. They were established following the return from Babylonian exile and were teachers who were highly involved in preserving the Hebrew scriptures. They developed the general precepts of the law, but unfortunately where there was no direct provision in written law, they created compensating laws based on precedent or inference. None of these were written down and was propagated by oral tradition. As such, the law became an extensive and complicated science where the rabbinical scribes ultimately judged what valid law was. This inevitably led to conflict which came to a head during the New Testament times. I've only managed to scratch on the surface of this 400 year period this morning. I didn't want to just give you a list upon list of things. So I've condensed it down into hopefully something which was interesting. And I have to admit that when John asked me to speak on it, I was a little concerned, as I don't normally do historical backgrounds, which this basically is, but rather I preach. Some say that like Peter, I only have one message, which is Christ crucified and risen again for our sin. But as I've spent time researching this period, and much of the above comes from very many different sources, because I have to confess that I did at the beginning, it's a subject I've not considered in any great depth, so I've had to go on to uh, the internet, bless it, and find out what you've heard this morning. And it's opened up an understanding as to the period and culture that Jesus was being born into with a greater depth than I'd previously got. 
It's also made me realise that God's plans and timing are perfect. I knew that already, but this has re-emphasised it to me. God didn't just decide now is a good time to send Jesus. He prepared the ground, and more importantly the people, to receive him. As we heard earlier in Galatians 4.4, and I'm going to read five different translations of it, just so you can get a flavour of it. The NIV says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son. The Amplified Bible says, But when, in God's plan, the proper time had fully come, God sent his Son. That's my favourite, because that's what I've learnt from this study. Holman says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son. The message says, but when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent his son. And the New Living Translation says, but when the right time came, God sent his son. God had spent those 400 years, not in silence, but in a time of preparation in order that prophecy in the Old Testament might be fulfilled, that the people could see that God keeps his promises and fulfills them. God knew that in sending Jesus, he was condemning him to the most horrendous torture and death, because prophecy had to be fulfilled, as God had foretold through the prophets. But it had to be, as Galatians 4.4 tells us, at the right time. My understanding of the historical background to Jesus coming has certainly grown through researching this. And also my understanding of some of the groups and cultures of the time has deepened as well. Perhaps some of you already knew it. If not, I can commend spending some time looking at it to deepen your understanding of the time and culture of Jesus' arrival on earth. There's so much more to read and understand than I've been able to cover today. Some are saying that we are in similar times today, that they're looking for the return of Christ soon to redeem us all, that God has abandoned us to our mess and will only speak again through a prophet when we as Christians and as nations fully repent and turn again to him. I don't know what, if any truth, is in any of those statements, but what I have learned from this study is that God is in control, whatever the circumstances and whatever situation we find ourselves in. That as believing Christians, we can trust him to know what is best for each and every one of us, even when we cannot see it or understand it, and that when the time is right, he will act in sovereign power, and the plans which he has for us as individuals, plans to prosper and not to harm, will be fulfilled. If you don't have that certainty of hope this morning, then you need to get to know God and Jesus better. John, or I, or Nick, will be delighted to spend time with you talking it through. Or you can turn to a trusted Christian friend if that's more comfortable for you. What I do know is that a relationship with the living God who loved you and me so much that he sent his one and only son to die, the most heinous death on a cross for our sins, and for him to rise again, to sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for you and for me, is the most important relationship we can ever have. And accepting that relationship is the most important decision you can ever make in your life. When you've made it, he has promised that he will never leave you 
nor forsake you, and will hold you firmly in his hand through to eternal life. And God doesn't ever break his promises. Peter's sermon again. Amen.